0: We have a theme verse for Serve Week. It is 1 John 4.19. 1 John 4.19. Get it? It's easy for you to remember, right? We made it easy. So here's the verse, and um, it's going to be our theme as we talk about Serve Week and go through this. 1 John 4.19. It says, we love because he first loved us. Pretty easy verse, right? I bet we could all learn it today. Are you ready? Say it with me. Here we go. 1 John 4.19. We love okay now everybody close your eyes and let's try it no don't that's okay that's all right but we're going to talk about this verse over the course of the next few weeks and that's going to be our theme as we go out and serve our community so where do we begin i think we begin with the first two words we love because if we do what we do without love paul tells us in 1 corinthians 13 that basically it's worthless so here's the question how do we know what that's like How do we know how to express that love? How do we know how to show that love? Somewhere we need an example, and I think the best example in all of Scripture is John 3.16. So that's going to be our our text for today. It's a familiar verse. You probably are aware of it. You probably know it. In fact, we'll, we'll look at parts of it both this week and again next week. But I want to start there, and here's what we're going to do. Just kind of phrase by phrase. I want to take this passage, I want to unpack it and see what this means for us if we are truly going to love the world and the community around us. So let's jump in. John three sixteen. you know it. Here's what it says. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. So kind of bit by bit, phrase by phrase, let's talk about what this verse means. Let's start here. For God so loved the world. And this is critical for us to see because if we're going to learn to love others, if we're going to show love to the world around us, we need to recognize that God gives us the best example that we're going to see anywhere. First John 4, 8. Listen to what John says about God here. He says, whoever does not love does not know God because God is... He is love. He's the definition of love. He's how we know what love is. He is the best example. And so if you and I are going to show love to others, if we are going to express love in our homes, if those around us in our community and in our workplace are going to experience the love of God, if we're going to even be able to love those that we don't find lovable or that we disagree with or who disagree with us, our model is God. God is our great example of how to love others. God is our great example of just how to love others. But oftentimes it gets a little misrepresented. And we forget what God's really like. And we fail to understand that He is the source, He is the great example of love. But keep that in mind, especially as we go to the next part of this verse. So back to John 3.16, it says this, For God so loved the world... What do we mean when we talk about the world? Well, it kind of comes down to this. We mean that God loves the world. God loves everyone. Do you believe that? God loves everyone? I saw a bumper sticker years ago that said, God loves everyone. And underneath it said, the rest of us think you're a jerk. (laughs) Not biblical. But here's the truth. God loves everyone, including those who have not loved him yet. God loves everyone, no matter what they say, no matter what they do, no matter what they think. God loves everyone. John 3, 16, his love is about everyone, even if they have not loved him yet. And that's key for us, because when we talk about the world, we're not just talking about those who agree with God's word or those who live according to God's word. We're talking about Everybody, and I don't know about you, but in the last couple of weeks, this idea of what's going on in the world around us has been everywhere, hasn't it? It's been in the headlines, it's been in the front pages, and everything from um, extreme experiences of racism to, um, unless you have just been hiding out somewhere, you probably um, are aware of the Supreme Court's decision on Friday, right? Is everybody kind of familiar with that? Where the Supreme Court basically legalized same-sex marriage. And so we're, we're in a very interesting day where the, the, the culture, the values of this world that John talks about here. The world that God loves so much. The values of that culture are coming head-to-head with the truths that many Christians would believe or hold to. And so this, this raises some interesting responses. One of the places where I think we absolutely have to begin is not to get too caught up in this, this, this fact that there's a difference between the world and the kingdom of God. Here's what Jesus said about this. John chapter 18, verse 36. Jesus said, My kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. Did you hear what Jesus said? He said, look, this world that we're in is really not his kingdom. There is a kingdom of this world. But he represents the kingdom of our God, the kingdom of heaven, right? That's what He's all about. That's what He's here to do. And if we are, and, and let, me, let me just start here, especially for the next few moments. I'm specifically talking to those of you who are here. Maybe you're watching online. Maybe you're in Auditorium 2. You're, you're in one of our venues. We're talking to those who would say, I am a follower of Jesus Christ. I believe that God's Word is the source of absolute truth. I, my life is dedicated to living and following Him. Then as we talk about this, here's what's interesting. In the last few days, especially since Friday and the decision that came down on Friday... I have seen so many different responses from followers of Jesus Christ. I've seen believers respond in so many ways. From anger to disbelief to fear to to just so many different things. And it's important for us to think about and talk about these things. And how do we respond in a day and time like this? Because the truth is for many of us, myself included, when when that decision came down, there was disappointment. There was concern. And rightfully so. To which some people would say, why do you care? What's it matter to you? If two people are in love, what's what's that got to do with you? If two people want to just be happy, what, you don't want them to be happy? Who are you to tell somebody else how they can live their life? What they're allowed to do and what they're not? Is it hurting you? Anybody die? If it's not hurting you, then it's none of your business. Just let them be happy. And do you know how I know people are saying that? Two words, Facebook. Right? (laughs) It's everywhere. And here's 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 the deal. And and understand this. There's there's I I guarantee you. There's some of you that are hearing this message, and you're going, I don't things I'm about to say. You're going to go, I don't necessarily. I don't. I don't. You don't know the people that I know, Chad. And I don't necessarily agree with you on this. And I don't necessarily see things the same way that you see things on on this issue. And you know what? That's okay, right? Cuz we can we can agree to disagree and we can still be friends and we can still love each other if we don't have some of those same concepts. I just I just know this. I decided a long time ago when I was first in ministry. I decided I didn't want to be a cause guy. I've known people who just, whatever the political cause is, whatever the issue of the day is, they want to stand up and they want to trumpet it and they want to try to draw people around them and all this kind of thing because they're cause people and they want the church to be about a cause and all that kind of thing. I said, I don't want to be a cause guy. I'm not interested in that. But there's sometimes when I can't help but be a truth guy. Does that make sense? And there's times when we've just got to say, what does the truth say? What is the truth that we have to consider? So... So just to be really honest, after Friday, I thought, man, this, this decision that came down has really concerned me. I know it's concerned a lot of you. Let me, let me give you for just a moment five causes for concern. We're going to cover a lot of stuff here in the next few minutes, so we're going to run if that's okay. We're going to move through this quick. Let me give you five causes for concern. Why, why are we concerned about Friday's decision from the Supreme Court? Number one, because it, it shows the dismissal of history. Just the dismissal of history. We have, we have 6,000 years of history of defining what marriage is. Not just from a biblical sense, but a historical sense. 6,000 years of history defining what marriage is. And, and on Friday, five people redefined it for us. So that's a concern to me. That something like that can happen. Here, here's a second thing that I think is significant. A second cause for concern is, number two, the disregard for the U.S. Constitution. Disregard for the U.S. Constitution. Let me, this isn't me saying this. Let me read this to you. Chief Justice, Chief Supreme Court Justice John Roberts said this in his dissent. He was one of the four that voted against this. In his dissent, he made this statement. He says, if you're among the many Americans of whatever sexual orientation who favor expanding same-sex marriage, by all means, celebrate today's decision. Celebrate the achievement of a desired goal. Celebrate the opportunity for a new expression of commitment to a partner. Celebrate the availability of new benefits. But do not celebrate the Constitution. It had nothing to do with it. It's quite a statement from the Chief Justice, isn't it? So that's one of the reasons we should be concerned. Here's a a third thing. A third thing that I think we need to consider, especially as followers of Christ. I'm concerned because of the institutionalization of sin. The institutionalization of sin. When, When we take something that God's word calls sin, and then we just say it's it's legal, it's institutional, then there's a challenge there. We'll, we'll look at some other scriptures here in just a moment. But in, in Romans 1, in fact, we talked about this several months ago. In Romans 1, Paul lists a whole bunch of sins. This being one of them. And he says this, Romans chapter 1, verse 32. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. They approve of those who practice them. They've institutionalized something that God says is sin and then say, hey, that's cool. You go ahead. We'll call it legal and we'll institutionalize it. Do you see the cause for concern? Let me give you a fourth thing. Number four, it's it's the peril of religious liberty. That's a real concern here. That our freedom of religion is somehow going to be in real conflict with this. Let me give you just two examples. This isn't me talking. This isn't some preacher somewhere talking. This is again Chief Justice John Roberts. He said this. Unfortunately people of faith can take no comfort in the treatment they receive from the majority today. It's quite a mouthful isn't it? Justice Thomas went on to say this, and in speaking about the wide-ranging implications for religious liberty based on the same-sex marriage ruling, he said, It appears all but inevitable that the two, that ruling and religious liberty, will come into conflict, particularly as individuals and churches are confronted with demands to participate in and endorse civil marriages between same-sex couples. Do you know what they're saying there? They're saying that our religious liberty is imperiled. But here's, here's the deal. There's, there's lots for us to be concerned about what went down on Friday. But the first four are kind of just whatever. You can do whatever you want with them. Number five is where it becomes a real challenge. Number five, I'm concerned because of the disobedience to God's word. That's where there becomes this real challenge and this real trouble. If you look at polling data before the decision, um, I saw one poll that looked at different religious groups and showed how much they were in support or against. And the group of, of religious people who were least supportive were the evangelical Christians. That's us, right? And then if you looked at other polling data and you looked at which religious groups believed the most in the authority of God's word, it would be evangelical Christians, right? Right? So our big challenge is this. Our big challenge is we believe what God's word says. And when we see culture in clear disobedience to God's word, it raises a real moment of concern for us. To the point that this is what I've heard. June 26, 2015. Things will never be the same. (laughs) June 26, 2015. The day everything changed. Have you heard that? I've heard that. I've seen that. I do a pretty good dramatic voice, don't I? I mean, if you if you if you, if you track with me, I was impressed, better than first service. Here's the deal. I hear that from people. Things will never be the same. Everything's going to change, and I've heard a lot of fear, and I've heard a lot of despair. Let me let me give you, if you will, seven things I want you to remember about June 26, 2015 before you take that date and write it down somewhere as the day that everything fell apart for you, remember these seven things. Number one, God's word is the source of absolute truth. God's word, the Bible, is the source of absolute truth. He has given it to us We've talked about this, if, if you were here back in March, you know we went through through the month of March, we went through a series of messages that was part of our bodybuilding series where we talked about how do you speak the truth in love, and part of what we talked about is the fact that there is absolute truth, that God's word is that truth, and we stand on that, we believe in that, that's what our lives are based on, and the truth is that in God's word it calls sexual immorality, including homosexuality, sin it says that God's pattern for marriage has been from the beginning of time and continues to be one man, one woman for a lifetime. And some, and some of what I've heard is that that's an Old Testament concept and that it's nowhere in the New Testament. But I had somebody say that, to me this week so let me give you just three references I'm not going to read them all and if you want to see what we believe biblically about this the third message in our speak the truth in love um, sermons in the bodybuilding series we talked about this in, in quite a bit of detail let me give you just some references if you want to write them down Romans chapter 1 verses 26 and 27 Romans 1 26 and 27 1st Corinthians 6 verses 9 and 10 1st Corinthians 6 9 and 10 1st Timothy 1 9 and 10 All of which explicitly mention um, what God refers to as the sin of homosexuality. Now, here's what's interesting. Many times people will say, well, Jesus didn't say nothing about it. So it must not be too bad. It's interesting how Jesus addressed this whole thing. Matthew chapter 15 verse 19, he said this. For out of the heart come evil thoughts. Murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. He goes on from there. But that word sexual immorality is a loaded word in the Greek language. It's a loaded word in the New Testament. Because when he used it, he wasn't just talking about one kind of sexual immorality. He was talking about them all. And if you dig in and find out what's a part of that, a part of that is lust. A part of that is sex outside of marriage. A part of that is the practice of homosexuality. So Jesus didn't just point out sins. There were too many to mention. He just said, look, just stay away from them all. And so he that's, that's the message that's there. And we have to recognize this. Now let me stop for just a moment, just so you know. Just so you don't get the wrong idea. I'm Chad Gilligan. I'm the pastor at Calvary Church. And I'm a sinner. For real. I got, I got issues. I know some of you you got issues. Some of you really some of you really I mean that's we all are, right? And everybody's everybody's got that thing. There's stuff about you that you don't want anybody to know. Stuff about me that I don't want anybody to know. There's stuff in all of our closets, baggage that has changed us, defined us, shaped us, whatever you want to talk about. And the Bible says that no matter what that sin is, no matter how egregious society or other people seem to think of it is, it's enough to separate us from God, right? So before we start getting ourselves all wound up and excited about one particular sin, don't forget you got some of your own. But the issue here is this. When God's word calls something sin... We need to recognize it as that because it's the absolute truth. And and unless someone acknowledges the authority of Scripture and the lordship of Jesus Christ, they will determine moral right based on human judgments and not divine truth. It's a mouthful, but think about that for a moment because that's at the crux of what's going on here in our culture. Why do some people think different from other people? Because unless someone acknowledges the authority of Scripture and the Lordship of Jesus Christ, they will determine moral right based on human judgments and not divine truth. So based on that thought, let's go to the second thing I want you to remember. Number two, as God's instrument of grace in the world, the church must speak the truth in love. As God's instrument of grace in the world, the church must speak the truth in love. We spent a lot of time on this. Let me give you just a quick reminder of something we said in that series. Truth without love is condemnation. But love without truth is false hope. So the two have to be a one-two punch, don't they? Because if all you're doing is spewing truth and there's no love, then you're just condemning people and you're not helping anybody. You're just pushing them away. But if all you're doing is loving someone and you don't show them the truth of either the error of their ways or the way of salvation, then that love you're giving to them is just false hope. Truth and love has to be both of them together, and that's the call of the church. Number three, third thing I want you to remember, that the laws of man must never trump the laws of God. The laws of man must never trump the laws of God. And just because people or culture says something is right or acceptable, does that mean it's right and acceptable in God's eyes? The answer is no a quick quote from from george wood dr wood is the general superintendent of our fellowship of churches the assemblies of god and in his response on friday he said this when it comes to same-sex marriage scripture prohibits what the supreme court permits that's that's fairly clear isn't it if you want to read the rest of that it's available at ag.org you can go out to that website and get the rest of that uh, that reference but the laws of man must never trump the laws of god number four and this is this is big this is where i would say to some of you and i don't know if i don't know if i'm allowed to say this in church but this is what i say to some of you settle down okay just settle down number 4 even though american laws change god and his word never change even even if the world around us is changing now look should we be concerned absolutely do we need to be proactive we better be do we need to think forward? Do we need to think about our religious liberties? Do we need to share our faith? Absolutely. But understand this, church. At the beginning, this is a time for prayer and not despair. It's a time for prayer and not despair. That we turn to God. That we look to Him. That we recognize this. That Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. On June 27th, God didn't wake up and go, Oh man, now what do I do? <sighs> He's the same, and he's still in charge, and our trust is still in him. Number five, this is key, cultural values without biblical truth lead to societal decline. Cultural values without biblical truth lead to societal decline. Let me, just, let me just say it this way. I can be quick to go, and, and I'm thankful that I live in a country that espouses freedom. I've got freedom of religion. I've got freedom of speech. I've got freedom of the press. I've got freedom to live my life the way that I feel designed to do it. And those ideas initially are informed by scriptural ideas. That idea that all men are created equal is actually in scripture, isn't it? And when scriptural ideals inform our cultural values, that's great. But when our cultural values supersede biblical truth, and we start to take our cultural values and use them to define scripture, we're on a slippery slope, right? As soon as our cultural values are what we use to define what our scriptural practices are, that's when we know we're headed for societal decline. Let me give you a sixth thing. Number six, the right side of history will not be determined until we bow before Jesus. The right side of history will not be determined until we bow before Jesus. I've heard this term a couple of times in the last couple of weeks, that we want to be on the right side of history. Here's, here's what that means. I don't know if you know this. Uh, it was kind of kind of quiet a couple of weeks ago. Toledo City Council passed a same-sex ordinance. And when they did, one of the commentators said that this was key that they did that because they wanted to be on the right side of history. They didn't want to look back and go, "Oh, we were, we were wrong. We were on the right side of history. We weren't old fashioned. We didn't miss it. We weren't antiquated." And there are times when you go, "Look, I want to be right. I want to be with the times. I got new shoes for Father's Day. My my daughter picked them out, and I just, and I think I think Chris is in here somewhere. I I probably wouldn't have picked them. Right? They're just a little bit, a little bit different than what I might normally wear. But when your seventeen-year-old daughter says," Dad, I think you'd look cool in these. In fact, any time that your daughter uses the word dad and cool in the same sentence and not is not in the middle, it's a good day, right? So I'm wearing them. You know why I'm wearing these shoes? Because I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. I don't want my daughter saying to her kids, your grandpa's so old, Right? There's sometimes you go, I want to be on the right side of history. With biblical principles and God's definition of morality, I don't think that applies, right? Do you know when we're going to define who's on the right side of history? On that day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, not that a decision was right or not that something was legal or not, but on that day when every knee bows and we confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, that's when I want to be on the right side of history. Let me give you another one. Last one, number seven. The church's challenge of today was the church's normal in the New Testament. The church's challenge of today, because this is what I've heard, it's all over. It's done for the church. We're going to lose our liberties. We're going to lose our freedom. We're going to lose our lives. I'm losing my mind, right? That's That's what we're experiencing. Look, this is today's challenge. But this was the normal for the New Testament. You take a moment and think outside of your own little world for a moment. For much of the world today, for much of history, and especially in the New Testament, the church has been challenged by the laws of the world. Isn't that true? You ever read the book of Acts? Was there a parade every time Paul came into town? It was usually a parade when they ran him out of town. Why? Why? You can't do this. You can't do that. You can't come in here. You can't preach that. Are you crazy? You're going to jail. We're going to kill you. But persecution throughout history has been the norm of the church. And we get all upset by it. But why are we surprised? Jesus said it. Paul said it. John said it. Peter said it. The Bible said it. It's all in there. We can't expect to be persecuted. John said it this way. And I don't mean this in any kind of a egregious way. John said it this way. The world around us is a culture of antichrist. It is opposed to Christ. We are what's called Christians, little Christs. Can you see why there may be animosity? We can expect this. We don't throw our hands up in the air. And did you see what happened when the little Christs, when the Christians went against a world and a culture, not only in the nation that you talked about today, Don Jackie, but also in what we see in the New Testament, that when the church was the church, you realize this is a tremendous opportunity for us to be the church. That when the church was the church and lived out the gospel, speaking the truth with love. And let me go back to this. If you're not going to do it in love, please don't do it at all. But when they spoke the truth in love, when they lived the truth in love, what does Acts chapter 2 tell us? And their numbers were added to on a daily basis. Because even in conditions where it shouldn't, that's where God is able to allow the church to thrive. So what does that mean? It means that God so loved the world. A world that doesn't even love him yet. A world that's clearly in opposition to him. That he gave. It's right back to it. How do we respond? Because for so many of you, you're like, I don't know what to do. You love. You love people. You give. You give of yourself. Love will always cause us to give of ourselves. He will put us in a place. I see it every so often. A new uh, new, new couple comes in, sits on my couch, premarital counseling. We're going to talk about them getting married. And they are in love. And yet you can still see they are clearly selfish. This relationship has not beat the self out of them yet. (laughs) Looks like the honeymoon's going to be over and you're going to find out what it's really all about. Why? Because if you love somebody at some point, you know what it comes down to? It comes down to the fact that you give of yourself to that person. If we're going to love people who are different than us, who look different than us, who think different than us, you know what it means? It means that we give. And what do we give? For God so loved the world that he gave one of his kids that he thought he could spare. (laughs) What did he give? He gave his best. He gave his one and only son. And truly loving another will cost us something. What difference will it make? My friend Larry Osborne pastors a church in Southern California, and he was he was preaching um, to his church about an event like we're going to do with Serve Week, and he used this analogy, and and I. I i'll use this throughout this series so so when you hear it again the next time i just, I just like it I'll, i know i'll use it again when i hear it. just act surprised again like you've never heard it before but here's here's the deal he uses this analogy he says if you ever listen to a song and you listen to the song because you like the music you like the beat there's something in the song that just it gets stuck in your head and then later you you're listening to the song and you realize that you'd never really listen to the lyrics and you hear them and you're kind of embarrassed that you like the song you ever had that happen I've been, I've been like in the store with my family. Song comes on. All I know is like a little bit of the chorus. And when I know a song and I'm in the store, I sing it out loud because it embarrasses my family. It's what I do. And I've been singing a song and then all of a sudden I'm listening to the words. And I'm like, oh, I should not sing that song. You done that? It's a little embarrassing. And then Rhonda's always happy because she's like, yeah, that'll teach you. Pastor, singing that song. Right? Here's what my friend Larry says. Larry says this. People are drawn to beautiful music. If you have wonderful lyrics, but if you have a crummy sound, do people like that song? No, they don't hear what you have to say because it's the music that gets stuck in their head. But when the music is beautiful, then people stick around long enough to hear what the lyrics have to say. Your life should be so beautifully lived. Your life should be such beautiful music that it sticks in people's heads, that it resonates in their hearts, that they listen to the music long enough to hear the words that you have to say. They'll pay attention to your lyrics, but you have to make beautiful music first. Do you get that? Okay. We'll go back to John 3.16 next week. Let me, let, me, let me take you real quick to another passage of Scripture. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. And bring all this together. When I was praying yesterday and, you know, the, working on the message throughout the week and then the thing comes down Friday and I, I feel like, man, I got I to gotta speak to this. So as I'm praying about this yesterday, this passage of Scripture comes to mind. Hosea chapter 11. When I was uh, at, at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary, I took a class, Dr. Roger Cotton's Hebrew Exegesis class, one of the hardest courses I've ever taken. I had, I had studied Hebrew for a couple of years. It's, it's all gone. It's, it, it's gone. But I was pretty cool at the time taking that course. And we studied the book of Hosea. And then everybody was given a passage that they had to translate. So you had to take it from the Hebrew, translate it into English, and then you had to do this term paper, and then you had to present it in front of the rest of the class. So it was a pretty big deal. It was more than half your grade. This was huge. This project was huge. My project was this passage. Hosea chapter 11. I want you to listen to this. And before we go there, understand this. God gets a bad rap sometimes. Especially Old Testament God. We say that Old Testament God is angry, right? That's what people think. He was just kind of mean in the Old Testament. New Testament God, he's not so bad. New Testament God kind of loves us. In fact, he'd even die for us. Old Testament God just wants you to die, right? It's kind of the thought that people have. Old Testament God's grumpy. He kind of cheers up before the New Testament. Things get better. That's the thought. That's the cultural idea. Hosea, Old Testament, chapter 11, verse 1. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, Egypt all throughout scripture is an analogy for slavery and bondage, where you need deliverance. He says, out of Egypt I called my son. But the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, and they burned incense to images. It was I who taught Ephraim. Ephraim's another name for Israel, the nation that God loved. It was I who taught Ephraim to walk, taking them by the arms. But they did not realize it was I who healed them. I led them with cords of human kindness, with ties of love. To them, I was like one who lifts a little child to the cheek, and I bent down to feed them. Do you, does that sound like angry God to you? Do you know what you read there? You read a picture of God's love. A God who takes his child, the nation of Israel, and says to them, I love you, I'm going to help you learn how to walk. I'm going to get you a little step by step. I'm going to bend down. I'm going to kiss you on the cheek. I'm going to let you know how much I love you and how much you mean to me and how much I care about you. Does that sound like an angry God? No, it's a picture of God's love. But go back to verse 2. Did you see what the people's response was to this? Look at verse 2. It says, but the more they were called, the more they went away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals, which were false gods, and they burned incense to images. These were idols, things they put up ahead of God. Things that they said, this is more important to us than what God is. Romans chapter 1 says that they glorified the creature instead of the creator. That they worshipped what he made instead of worshipping the one who made it. And what you see here in the midst of this picture of God's love is a problem of God's people. We have this tendency, even though God loves us so much, to forget what he's done for us. Do you remember what he said there? He said that they forgot that I... I was the one. They missed the fact that I was the one. They did not realize that it was I who blessed them, that it was I who healed them. They missed the whole thing. And the problem so many times with people that God loves, with a nation that God took care of, is that at some point, even though they say in God they trust, they really don't. To the point that a God who is nothing but love, with a people who have turned away from Him, must say this. Look at verse 5 of Hosea chapter 11. Will they not return to Egypt? What is Egypt again? Slavery? Bondage? Is that starting to ring true with anybody? No, stop it. Will they not return to Egypt? And will not Assyria rule over them? Because they refuse to repent. A sword will flash in their cities. It will devour their false prophets and put an end to their plans. My people are determined to turn from me. My people are determined to turn from me. My people, the nation who trusted in me, are determined to turn from me. And even though they call me God Most High, I will by no means exalt them. God says, you know those people I love? Those people who forgot, I blessed them. They've, they've determined to turn from me, which leaves me with no choice but a promise of God's judgment. Look, if you don't, uh, if you don't get it right, Israel, you're going to find yourself in a place where that blessing that I gave you, where that favor that I gave you, if you're determined to turn from me. That I got no choice but to lift it. Does that give anybody else the creeps? Because God says to a nation. That he blessed. That was founded on his truth. That was determined to turn from him. He says sorry guys. You're just going to get what's coming to you. Unless. 2 Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14. If my people, who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray, and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, and I will forgive their sin, and I will heal their land. Look, before you freak out, recognize that there is a tremendous opportunity for the church in this day and time, isn't there? But, let me tell you the rest of the story late April 1995 Ron and I had been married probably about a year and a half I'm at the Assemblies of God Theological Seminary in Dr. Robert C- Roger Cotton's Hebrew exegesis class I have to do a huge term paper on the book of Hosea chapter 11 it's more than half my grade I have to do this huge term paper and I have to turn it in on a certain day and I have to give a presentation to the class It was kind of a cool season for us, but it was busy. We were both working full-time jobs. We were both full-time students, and we were really heavily involved in a local church. It was a great season, but we were busy, and we were preoccupied with so many different things. And I realized then, for one of the first times in my life, that I have the spiritual gift of procrastination. And I had this paper to do, and I thought, ah, this won't be that bad. And I get working on it that week, and I realize it's a whole lot more work than I thought it was going to be. To the point that my Friday morning 7.30 class, when I have to present the paper, Thursday night, I'm going, Old Testament God is after me. right this is bad I don't know how I'm gonna get this thing done so I pulled an all-nighter I stayed up all night long trying to get this thing done hammer it out figure it out I'd been working on it a lot and probably somewhere between 5 and five thirty that morning for a seven thirty class I wrapped this thing up I printed it off and I'm done and I'm like man I hope this thing will fly I hope it turns out all right so I knew I needed to get ready, and I, need, I didn't want to go to bed, I decided I needed to get ready, and then I'll go in, I'll present my paper, I'll go over it a couple more times, I'll be in a good spot, but before I do all that, I'm just going to sit down on the couch for just a minute. Yeah, let me tell the story, okay? Alright? About 5.30, I sit down on the couch, so I could rest just a couple of minutes for my 7.30 class that I woke up for at 9 o'clock. Yeah, you guessed it. I wasn't just late. (laughs) I missed it. I had this incredible paper and presentation on God's love and His judgment, and I slept right through it. The church cannot afford to fall asleep on this message of God's love and judgment in this day and time. Would you agree? And so, Father, we come to you today. Lord, we come to you on behalf of our nation. And we come to you on behalf of your church. Lord, and we rest in the fact that you are a God who so loved the world that you gave your one and only Son. You gave your very best that at the cross... There's no place that's more tolerant than the cross. Anybody can come. Whoever can come. And yet, Lord, you've called us to live out this message of truth in a world and a time in our culture where in so many ways we're pulling away from that truth. Lord, I pray for the one who's hearing this message who realizes today that their life has not been built or founded on the absolute truth of your word. And in this moment, as they look to you, I pray that they would experience your grace and your peace. And Lord, if necessary, your salvation. And Lord, I pray that in a world that is changing around us, that you would help us to remember that you never change. That our hope is not in something where we find despair, but that when we look to you, we recognize you as the same yesterday and today and forever. We pray that as the people of God, you would help us to stand up and to stand out. God, we pray that as the church of Jesus Christ, we would be exactly what you created us to be. That even in a world that may disagree, even in a world that may not understand, even in a world that may not like what your word says, that they would see your love through us in such a way that as Peter said, the world around us would come to us and ask us what is the reason for the hope that you have and as a result Jesus as we lift you up would you draw men to you now Lord as we go from here we ask that you would go with us would you send us out with your special favor and your wonderful peace and we ask this in Jesus name Amen God bless you have a great week we'll see you next Sunday